Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to your copy of God's Word, or go there in your electronic version of God's Word to uh, Matthew chapter 6. Let's read verses 9 through 18. Jesus said to his disciples who were gathered before him, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And we saw this passage a couple of weeks ago when we were together last, um, the so-called Lord's Prayer or the Our Father prayer. And our passage for today is verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Well, one of the things that goes along with preaching expositorily, that is, uh, verse by verse through books in the Bible, major portions in the Bible, is um, sometimes it forces you to preach on topics that maybe you would never get to. If you're just preaching on subjects that are of interest, uh, there's a lot of subjects that the Bible talks about that may not register in terms of our interest level. And frankly, I think today's passage is one of those where Jesus talks about fasting. Fasting is a thing in the Bible, as we're going to see, and it's a thing in Christ's kingdom. That's why he uh, teaches his disciples about uh, the wrong way to fast and the right way to fast. If we were just picking popular topics, seeker-friendly Topics We would probably never pick this topic. And even especially on a 4th of July weekend, we, uh, we have preached on Independence Day themes before, but do you know that there is an application, there's a crossover between the subject of Christian fasting and, and Independence Day? Um, between June 1775 
and March 1782, eight times Congress passed proclamations calling for a national day of prayer and fasting, eight times. So that was the First Continental Congress, the Second Continental Congress, and then the Congress under the Articles of Confederation. And one of those proclamations calling for a national day of fasting and prayer was issued by the Second Continental Congress meeting in Philadelphia on March 16, 1776. And I'd like to read for you a little bit from this, and, and get this, from this congressional proclamation. So this Congress declared or proclaimed, in times of impending danger and distress, when the liberties of America are imminently endangered, it becomes the indispensable duty of these hitherto free and happy colonies with true penitence of heart and the most reverent devotion publicly to acknowledge the overruling providence of God, to confess and deplore our offenses against him, and to supplicate his interposition for averting the threatened danger and prospering our strenuous efforts in the cause of freedom, virtue, and posterity. And then they go on. We, Congress, do earnestly and recommend that Friday, the 17th day of May next, be observed by the said colonies as a day of, humili of humiliation, fasting, and prayer, that we may, with united hearts, confess and bewail our manifold sins, and by a sincere repentance, appease his righteous displeasure, and through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, obtain his pardon and forgiveness. This is Congress. These are the guys who wrote the Declaration of Independence. So this proclamation was in, uh, what did I say, March 1776. And a few short months later in July, the Declaration of Independence was issued. And I say that that Declaration of Independence was God's answer to their prayer and to the day of humiliation and fasting and prayer that the nation, the 13 colonies, observed uh, as the Congress had asked. So there's, there's a tie-in between what we're looking at here from the words of Jesus and the, the 4th of July. So this is what our founding fathers called for. Uh, we heard the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, let's look at the subject of Christ, Christian fasting. So the first thing that Jesus talks to us about here regarding Christian fasting is hypocritical fasting in verse 16. So the passage begins, and when you fast... Notice that when we get to verse 17, 
Jesus says again, but when you fast. So the assumption, just like we've seen earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, the assumption is that Jesus' followers will give to the poor and they will pray and they will fast. Jesus assumes that his followers are going to fast. So what is fasting? What does Jesus mean when he says, and when you fast? Fasting means simply to give up food for a period of time. That's where our word breakfast comes from. When we eat breakfast, we're literally breaking our fast from the night before when we were sleeping. But in the Bible, fasting has nothing to do with diet. It's a spiritual exercise. And so in the Bible, fasting means giving up food for a period of time to focus on seeking the Lord in prayer. And just like our founding fathers expressed through the Second Continental Congress indicated, uh, it, it goes along with humiliation. And so in the Old Testament, that was the case. When people were fasting, it was a time for them to humble themselves. It was a time for them to be afflicted, not just through hunger, but in their in their souls. And all of that was so that we would focus on seeking the Lord in prayer with the right attitude, with the right heart. And so fasting by itself, just giving up food by itself, is of no spiritual value. But fasting is spiritually meaningful when it is used as an aid in sincere prayer. And that's why this paragraph appears where it does in the Sermon on the Mount. It's right after the Lord's Prayer. And so just as the Lord's Prayer gives us a pattern for what we would say when we pray, so verses 16 and 18 give us a pattern for our attitude in prayer, our humility in prayer, just like the saints of old, just like believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have always done, so Christians, followers of Jesus, are expected to, from time to time, fast and pray. Fasting was a familiar religious practice in Old Testament Israel. The, the only fast that was actually required under the Mosaic law was in connection with the Day of Atonement. And you can read about that in Levit Leviticus chapter 16 and a couple of other places. So it's not that fasting was necessarily a commandment, just one day a year in connection with the Day of Atonement. But fasting was observed on special occasions by Moses, Samson, Samuel, Hannah, 
David, Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, and many other Old Testament believers. And this carries over into the New Testament, as we're already seeing. And so there are several prominent New Testament believers, saints, leaders, who observed fasting as well, including Anna, John the Baptist and his disciples, Jesus himself, which we've already seen in Matthew chapter 4, the Apostle Paul and others. In church history, we know that many of the early church fathers fasted and prayed and that the great reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and after them, John Wesley and George Whitfield, who played a very important role in the spiritual uh, condition of the early colonial American states, which then led to the Declaration of Independence and the founding of our nation. But all of these men and leaders and many other outstanding Christian leaders fasted. So this is not weird. This is not out in left field. It might be, but only because, especially in 21st century America, we often lose touch with biblical Christianity. It's very comfortable where we live and how we live. But there is one pitfall, pitfall to, uh, to avoid when fasting, and that's what Jesus goes on to say in verse 16. But when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. And uh, hypocrites are people that Jesus has already been talking about. In verse 2, for example, Matthew chapter 6, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. And in verse 5, And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. So it goes along with the territory that just like hypocrites would, as it were, blow a trumpet when they were giving to the poor to draw attention to themselves. And they loved an audience when they would pray. They would stand on the street corners and they would seem so pious and so spiritual and so religious and they loved it when people paid attention to them. So it is that hypocrites are capable of fasting. But just like in their giving and in their praying, in their fasting, it was all about them. It was all about drawing attention to them. It was all about trying to impress other people with their religiosity. And so when they would fast, they would be around people and they had long, gloomy faces. Look at me, I'm fasting. 
And that's no exaggeration. They looked gloomy and they disfigured their faces. So they used the muscles in their faces to look as gloomy and pathetic and, and uh, pitiful as they possibly could. Why? Just as before, that their fasting may be seen by others. They, they wanted people to see what they were doing so that other people would think, wow, brother Joseph, sister Anna is so spiritual and so religious. They, they give to the poor. They pray on the street corner and they fast. What's wrong with that? According to Jesus, end of verse 16, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Their reward was the attention of other people. That was their reward. That's it. There's no more reward. There's no answered prayer from God. There's no drawing near to the Lord in prayer. There's no humbling themselves and afflicting their souls, which is what fasting is supposed to help with. None of that. Just the attention of other people. Because, after all, in Jesus' words, they're hypocrites. They're putting on an act. They're pretending to be something they're not. And so their spirituality has nothing to do with God whatsoever. It's all about them and the attention they get from other people. So that's hypocritical fasting, how Christians should not fast. But thankfully, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He also tells us how we should pray how we should fast. So he describes God honoring fasting in verses 17 and 18. Isn't that a beautiful scene, by the way? I was up there yesterday on my motorcycle, and I'm not going to tell you where it is because it's real quiet. I'm, I'll tell you where it is. We should have a church camp day up there someday. It's really pretty. But um, the meadows, I've been up there, up there in the... Fish Creek area so many times in the last few years, and it's dry, everything's dying. Look at how green that meadow is, and there's wildflowers. It's just stunning. Someday, the new earth. Amen. It'll be better than that everywhere. All right, God honoring fasting, verses 17 and 18. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 17, but when you fast anoint your head and wash your face. And the, the idea there is not that anointing our heads and washing our faces do anything for us before God because God, after all, doesn't look at the outward appearance like people do, but he looks at the heart. That's not the point. 
The point is look normal. Let your self-affliction and your so-called supposed humility be on the inside between you and God. Pay no attention whatsoever to what other people think and what other people see when they look at you. Anoint your head and wash your face. Don't have a gloomy look. Don't disfigure your faces like the hypocrites do. And why is that? Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Remember in verse 16, the fasting of hypocrites? They have their reward. It's all on the human plane. No reward from God. But for believers, genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have a heart from God, who don't care what other people think, there is reward from God. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So how will God reward us for our God-honoring fasting and praying? A lot could be said, but I just have three quick thoughts for you. How will God reward us for our God-honoring fasting and praying? Well, he will reward us with more of himself. Remember that when we pray, we don't just ask for stuff. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to begin, our Father in heaven. We acknowledge who God is and importantly, who God is to us. And so really, the most important thing in prayer is that we are seeking the Lord's face. We're having communion with our Father who is in heaven. God said through Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 29 and verse 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's part of the utility of fasting and praying. Fasting is a, an aid to help us search for the Lord, seek the Lord with all of our hearts. And God's promise is, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So God rewards us with more of himself. Secondly, God rewards us by aligning our prayers with his will. He rewards us by al aligning our prayers with his will. Look in Psalm 37. This is the psalm that I quoted from when we began the service. 
We talked about this in uh, our prayer meeting this morning. So a lot of us are familiar with Psalm 37 and verse 4. It's a great and precious promise from the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And I've heard in Christian circles, in in Christendom, I've heard so many people not only rip Psalm 37 and verse 4 from its context, but the second half of Psalm 37 and verse 4 from its context. And so a lot of, I've heard a lot of people say things like, well, you have that desire in your heart. God put that desire in your heart. And so God promises to give you the desires of your heart. There's a lot of problems with that. For for one thing, James, in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, says that you desire and don't have because you, you don't ask. But then he also goes on to say, and when you ask, you ask amiss that you may spend it on your covetous desires. And that's the context where James goes on to call believers like that adulterers and adulteresses. And that's where he gives his warning about loving the world and the things in this world. And so sometimes the desires in our hearts aren't because God put them there. It's actually because there's still sin in our hearts. And our our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And there's too much in our hearts that still desire the world and the things in the world. So just because you desire something doesn't mean that that is from God and therefore God's going to give you that, right? But then look at the rest of the context, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That is our greatest need. The reason why we're lost, the reason why we need to be saved from God is because we're separated from God because of our sin by nature. We're alienated from God because of our wicked works. We do not delight ourselves in the, in the Lord. We delight in the world and the things in the world. We delight in ourselves. We delight in our own desires and our own agenda. And frankly, we delight ourselves in sin. That's our natural, fallen, sinful, spiritual condition when God saves us. And when God saves us, he changes our hearts. He replaces our natural heart that we just described with a heart that is now alive, that is oriented towards him 
that now loves him and his kingdom and his ways. And so now, because we're saved and we're regenerated, we actually pray things like, Lord, I delight in you. I want to delight in you more. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to me. I want to know you more, Lord. And when we delight ourselves in the Lord, then verse 3 is true about us also. Trust in the Lord and do good. We, we realize and learn that God is trustworthy and we can commit our ways to him. And even, the, even though the world says, this is right, this is righteous, this is what you should believe is good and true. Instead, we entrust ourselves and our lives to God. Even though it's diametrically opposed to what the world around us tells us. Trust in the Lord and do good. And in verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Verse 7, be still. In Psalm 46, twice, the psalmist, God through the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. Here the psalmist says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. God is not on our time schedule. Not only does God not owe it to us to give us our laundry list of requests, but when he does answer our prayers and give us what we ask for, it's not on our time schedule either. Wait patiently for him. So this is the atmosphere. This is the spiritual life of Psalm 37 and verse 4. If you're going to bank on he will give you the desires of your heart and praise God that that's true, remember the surrounding context. It's in the context of delighting yourself in the Lord for the Lord as the Lord, and seeking to live a life that is honoring to him, that waits on him, that trusts in him. And here's the thing. The more we pray Psalm 37 and verse 4, or anything else for that matter, the more our hearts and our mouths reflect the prayer life of Jesus himself, who remember on that night of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he was pouring out his soul before the Lord so that he was sweating great drops of blood, saying, Lord, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. His surrender was, nevertheless, not as I will, 
that yours be done. There's the man, Christ Jesus, in the act of praying, becoming conformed to his Father's will. And that's a reward. That is a good thing. It's a blessing. And then thirdly, here's how God rewards us for our God-honoring fasting and praying. He rewards us by answering our prayers. James writes, James 5.16, the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. And I think that if we formed a big circle and just went around the room sharing answered prayers in our lives, we would be here all night. Except we'd, a bunch of us would probably fall asleep because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? But God delights to answer the prayers of his children. He delights for us to come before him and cast our burdens at his feet. He delights for us to wait on the Lord. And he delights to answer our prayers, to give us the things that we ask for. So, what does this have to do with the gospel? By the way, we're talking about fasting and prayer. We've talked a little bit about the founding of our nation and the history of fasting and the history of redemption. But what does it all have to do with the gospel? Well, if you think about it, Christian fasting, and remember, in Christian fasting and prayer, we, we humble ourselves and we afflict our souls <coughs> as we come before the Lord. It's an expression. It's um, a, a real-life example of how much we need the Lord. That's what we say when we fast and pray. We give up food for a time, but we give up food in order to seek the face of God. We need God more than even our necessary food. And we sing about this in another hymn that we often sing here, I Need Thee Every Hour by Robert Lowery, 1872. And here's the refrain. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. God is honored when we realize how much we need him and we act on that by fasting and prayer. And Jesus' teaching here on fasting is also a reminder that God knows everything about us. Do you remember Jesus' language here? In verse 16, 
that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father. And how is the Father described? Who is in secret? And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That fact about God actually says a lot about the Christian message. The Christian message, when it boils right down to it, has to do with where we are, where we stand before our maker who sees us in secret. He he knows us through and through. He knows everything about us. We have no secrets before God. There's plenty of secrets that people have from one another. But there are no secrets before God. He sees, he knows it all. He is our Father who sees in secret. And the Bible talks a lot about this. Let me read to you some representative passages. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This is our purpose. This is why we're here. This is why we exist. Not for our self-actualization. Not so that we would have an adequate level of self-esteem. Not so that other people would accept us, but so that we would fear God and keep his commandments. And then the author goes on to say, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul writes that even unbelievers, their conscience also bears witness and, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, this is the gospel that Paul preached, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. How do you like that? Maybe there's somebody here today and you think that as God sees you, God sees a pretty good guy, a pretty good gal. You think that you're a good person. You think that your life is filled with good works. Well, the first thing that the Bible says to you would be, oh, is that so? Is there anything that you've left undone? Because the same James that we heard from earlier also said that to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. That same James also says that if there's any commandment that you've left 
undone. You're guilty of all. But then even deeper than that, what about your secrets? What about your thoughts? What about things that you've done that nobody else knows? I've got a bunch of those. God judges them by Christ Jesus. That's the bad news. God sees all that. You'll be held accountable for that. But Jesus died for our secret sins. When Jesus hung on the cross and the wrath of God was poured out on him as our substitute, as our Lamb of God, when he suffered and died for our sins on the cross, it wasn't just for our big sins, but it was also for our secret sins. And that's why there is salvation nowhere else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus and Jesus alone died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, including our secret sins. And then there's Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 16, where we read, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So it's not, our, our sins are not only what we've done or not done, and it's not only our secret sins, but it includes the thoughts and intents of the heart, even with respect to the good things that we've done. Good things for the wrong reasons. God knows all of it. And that's why Jesus came into the world. And that's why we're believers. That's why we proclaim the gospel message. But here's one last thought. What does this have to do with the gospel? Look with me briefly in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. And let's look at verses 1 and 2. Acts 13, verses 1 and 2. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Bar Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. This is Saul of Tarsus, who was miraculously saved by Jesus in Acts chapter 9, as Jesus was on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians, and Jesus saved him. And here's Saul, who would become the Apostle Paul. Here's Saul 
in a church. The church in Bar- uh, the church in Antioch. And that's because the gospel which is a message, it's the good news. It forms a gospel community. And in the New Testament, that gospel community is called the church. And this gospel community is important for nurturing missionaries and evangelists like Barnabas and Saul and encouraging all believers to live a gospel-proclaiming life as we work out the gospel in a fallen world. And it's important to provide the structure, the institution for the second half of the Great Commission where Jesus says, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the church. And a lot of Christians make a big deal about the gospel, and well, they should. And they think that the church has nothing to do with the gospel, but it does. It's Christ's appointed, described, formed, regulated, instituted, gospel community. And do you know what's important in Christ's gospel community? Leadership. And so we continue reading in verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, ah, fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And eventually, Barnabas and Saul are launched out into Paul's first missionary journey, and the whole of Christ's uh, of uh, Paul's missionary career. And it's in the context of this church in Antioch fasting and praying. Well, maybe that was an exception. Flip the page to Acts chapter 14. And uh, we'll start in verse 21. Here is Paul and Barnabas wrapping up their first missionary journey. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to other cities where they had preached and made many disciples, namely... Lustra and Iconium and to Antioch. And why did they go to these places? Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And notice verse 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting they committed to them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And so, we've been praying about Brother Kevin. We've scheduled a vote. Church, brothers and sisters, we need to fast 
and pray as a church. More details to come. But for now, let's commit ourselves to the Lord.